Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that explores Chinese history and culture through historical Chinese TV dramas. This is Karen. This is Kathy. In this episode, we are going to be discussing episode 22 out of 76 of Hogong Jin Huan Zhuan, Empresses in the Palace. This episode on the surface is pretty straightforward, but there are a ton of interesting snippets to discuss, especially when the ladies of the Imperial Harem go to the opera. So let's get started. And as a reminder, if you are just joining us for this podcast, which we are very grateful that you are doing so, if you have no idea or background of what this drama is about, we definitely recommend you join us for or tune into the intro to the drama episode so that you get an understanding of what we are talking about. Episode 22 is more centered around Hua Fei's corruption and the continued arrogance of Nian Geng Yao, her brother who is a decorated general. It's nearing the new year, and Hua Fei needs money, lots of it, to buy more clothes, more jewelry, and more gifts. Huafei's scheme of accepting bribes has been pretty successful, but she needs even more. One gentleman by the name of Zhao Zhiyuan is willing to send 50,000 taels just for a meeting with her brother. 50,000 taels. Taels is a form of measurement for money used in Imperial China. It's usually with silver, and that's how we see it in the the drama, or most dramas, actually. Um, but you can have it in gold, too. Right. Which is way more valuable. Silver is more valuable than the coins, and only really the truly rich could use it. Uh, I went down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out how much um, 50,000 tails is in today's money, but it's very difficult. You can try to convert it into dollars, but that doesn't really measure the purchasing power of what you could buy. The base measure uh, back in the day is really how much grain or rice you could purchase, which for us right now is different. There was a huge range in the estimates, but let's just simplify and say that this 50,000 tails is over a million US dollars, which is a lot for just a conversation. Nian Geng Yao does indeed meet this Zhao Zhiyuan and requests an audience with the emperor, who just so happens to be playing Chinese Go with the 17th prince. So Nian Geng Yao waits outside for his turn. The emperor wins the game of Go, to which he says, I need to painstakingly place all of the pieces in the right place in order to win the game. Do we think this is a bit of foreshadowing? The 17th prince Guo Jinwang leaves his brother's palace and sees that Nian Geng Yao is waiting outside, sitting in a chair, which is a big no-no. Nian Geng Yao sees Guo Jinwang, but doesn't even get up to kneel, another huge sign of disrespect. The 17th prince brushes it off, though, and he reminds his own servant that living under the radar is the only way to survive this emperor. Look at what happened to his brothers. As a reminder, the current emperor came to the throne after a coup with uh, nine of his other brothers. So they were all fighting. So sorry, eight of his other brothers. There were nine princes that were vying for the throne and the losers 
on opposing teams were either exiled or killed. So the fact that the 17th prince is still alive means that he is smart and understands how to live under the radar so as not to annoy his brother, the emperor. During the audience with the emperor, Nian Geng Yao requests for Zhao Zhiyuan's position at court to be restored. Zhao Zhiyuan is the person who just bribed Hua Fei a ton of money to get an audience with Nian Geng Yao. Now, it's obvious that the emperor, Huang Shang, does not want to restore Zhao Zhiyuan's position, but Huang Shang relents after several back and forths between him and Nian Geng Yao. This really frustrates Huang Shang because Nian Geng Yao is about to have more power than him. But what can Huang Shang do? Right now is not the time to berate Nian Geng Yao because Huang Shang needs to put all of the pieces in place. Later on, when Nian Geng Yao leaves, Huang Shang summons Jin Huan, and Jin Huan is asked for her opinion when she comes in on this whole situation. This time, she quotes a Song Dynasty poet to answer the question. We'll discuss this part later on. Back at Huafei's palace, we see that Huafei is extremely pleased with all of the quote-unquote donations that she has received from Zhao Zhiyuan, the man that was just reinstated by Huang Shang, by the grace of her brother, Nian Geng Yao. The man apparently said one sentence and convinced Huafei's brother, Nian Geng Yao, to change his mind about his position and help him. What was the sentence? The sentence was, 300,000 tails will be sent to the general Nian Geng Yao, and 100,000 tails will be sent to Huafei's palace. Now, who can refuse that? That's bribery and corruption at its finest. Elsewhere in the palace, An Ningzhong and Chen Huan have been working on separate projects. Unfortunately, they are both working on the same thing. A nightshirt or pajamas, more or less, for the emperor. These two ladies are making the same thing at the same time, separately for the emperor. Basically, what they're doing is they are uh, embroidering a nightshirt with a dragon on it for the emperor. The two of them doing this at the same time? What could possibly go wrong? The Empress Huang Hou arrives in Yangxin Dian, which is where Huang Shang stays and does most of his work, to clear the accounts of the imperial harem with the emperor. And she bluntly points out that Hua Fei is way overspending her allowance. Something must be fishy with where she got all of this money because there is no way that her allowance would ever be enough to supply all of the things that she is spending. Huang Shang, unfortunately, acknowledges that he has an inkling of where Hua Fei is getting all this money, but he lets it pass and pointedly tells Huang Hou, the empress, to let it go as well. It is at this point that the two pajama shirts that were embroidered by both An Ningrong and Jin Huan are presented to the emperor. A few days later, Chun Er, the cute and bubbly and young concubine, 
is showing off her makeup to Jin Huan and An Lingrong. The ladies are joking around and somehow get to the conversation of what the emperor looks like in bed. Rather a uh, risque conversation, don't you think, for such a conservative drama? Well, Huang Sheng apparently had noticed that Chuan'er, this cute concubine, was staring at his nightshirt and graciously said that he will cut out the golden dragon emerging from the clouds pattern on it and gift it to her if she so wishes. And then he puts on another nightshirt that has two dragons fighting over a pearl pattern on it. The emperor proceeds to say that he likes this pattern, the one with two dragons, on it more because it is comfier. Shall we guess who made which one? Yep, the one that was cut was made from An Lingrong, and the other one that had the two dragons is from Jin Huan. Chuan, the cute and bubbly concubine, just unknowingly insulted An Lingrong. And ugh, An Lingrong's face is not very pleasant, and she takes her leave. Jin Huan realizes that something Chuan'er said must have offended An Lingrong, but I don't think Jin Huan realizes what it actually is. So anyways, Jin Huan brings out a very precious pair of Hekian jade earrings to gift An Lingrong to appease her. Jin Huan's headmaid, Jin Xi, delivers the gift and all seems fine. The important part here is that when she is leaving, Jin Xi notices Zhu Qing, who is a maid, outside crying and tries to comfort her. Zhu Qing is a maid who currently is uh, in the employment of An Lingrong. This interaction between Zhu Qing and Jin Xi is overseen by Bao Jun, which then helps confirm her suspicion that Zhu Qing is actually a spy for Jin Huan. You'll recall that in the last episode, Bao Jun pushes An Lingrong into thinking that Zhu Qing, who was gifted to An Lingrong as a maid by Jin Huan, was done so purposefully so that they could spy or she could spy on An Lingrong. As we mentioned in the last episode, I really don't think this is true, but it doesn't matter because that is how An Lingrong perceives the relationship, that Zhu Qing is a spy for Jin Huan and that Jin Huan really doesn't care about An Lingrong. Back inside, An Lingrong is being all petty about the gift that Jin Huan gives her. She even says, Jin Huan and I are both concubines of the emperor. Why is it that I have never received such a rare gift from him? She is so jealous of Jin Huan right here. And here's where I think she gets it wrong. She uses the idiom ping qi ping zuo, which means equal footing. Yes, they are both concubines of the emperor, but they are definitely not equal. Ai Lingrong has no background, no real education, and she doesn't have the favor of the emperor. And she can't really do anything. She doesn't know how to like talk politics or like talk about historical facts with him. So how is she equal? She looks down on Chuan'er because she's young and has no real talent other than being a foodie and is angry at how flippant Chuan'er was just now, especially um, insulting her, her embroidery. Let me remind everyone that An Lingrong is only a first-class female attendant, the same as Chuan'er. What is An Lingrong angry about? That she received favor first? She sneers at the gifts that Jin Huan sent her, 
She says, uh, Zhen Huan doesn't care about her. She just cares about Chuan Er and Shen Meizhuang and is only sending her gifts to make her feel better. On the one hand, yes, it's true. But honey, did you not forget that Zhen Huan also just got humiliated by Hua Fei because of you literally in the last episode? She volunteered to go with you and she didn't have to. Aling Rong's only looking at what she wants to believe. There's some truth to what she says about Jin Huan, and I don't even think Jin Huan realizes the biases that she has, but Aling Rong is definitely going down a, a path that will ultimately alienate her, her uh, with the other ladies. Ultimately, though, I guess all this crying over that nightshirt and all this kerfuffle over that nightshirt was for naught because we find out the emperor is not even wearing Jin Huan's shirt. Instead, he is favoring an old one from his deceased first wife, Chen Yuan Huanghou. Hmm, is that some more foreshadowing? And when Kathy says yes, is that, or she's asking if that's more foreshadowing, yes, that's more foreshadowing. <laughs> The ladies of Hogong, or the Imperial Harem, are invited to the theater, and so they are going to watch opera. This opera here is Peking opera and very different from Western opera. There is a lot of sniping back and forth between Huafei and Huang Ho. The usual stuff, you know? And Jin Huan comes to rescue Huang Ho after seeing her begin to lose the battle. And then Yong also tries to pipe up to say something and is roundly humiliated by Huafei again. The episode ends with all of the women in Hogong paying their respects to the Empress Dowager, or Tai Ho, for the La Ba Festival. That was quite a lot of information, and so we hope you got all of that. But in any case, let's start off with our analysis. I want to talk about the conversation between Jin Huan and the emperor after he has his unpleasant audience with Niang Geng Yao. In giving her opinion, Jin Huan paraphrases from Peng Dang Lun, or Discourse on Factions, written by Ou Yangxiu. Ou Yangxiu was a Song Dynasty historian, poet, calligrapher, politician, writer, everything. The Discourse on Factions was written in 10... 44 AD as a proposal to the Song Emperor. Ou Yangxiu discusses elite politics and the importance of factions. Gentlemen have a responsibility to uphold moral principles, while Xiaoren, or despicable men, merely aim for profit. He argues that throughout history, dynasties thrived when the emperor listened to these gentlemen of upstanding morals. Jin Huan basically says, when these Xiaoren, or despicable men, have the shared profits, they will have temporary alliances, or pengdang. But once they have to compete for profit, they will turn to fight each other. Jin Huan is saying that the emperor shouldn't have to worry about such people because they will be their own demise. She is directly inferring that Niang Gong Yao is not a gentleman and he, the emperor himself shouldn't have to worry because he will not last long at court. The emperor is very pleased with this answer. What's important here is that this is the second time Jin Huan uses other historical writings to discuss current politics. Unlike the previous time, though, she is now directly quoting political texts. She is getting bolder and bolder with her ideas. However, is this good for her? Remember that women in the imperial harem, or women in general, are not supposed to talk about politics. 
But here, she's making rather bold suggestions. Does that uh, put her... Wh where does that put her? Hey, at least for me, though, I get to learn about this discourse on factions, which apparently is pretty influential to a lot of Chinese politics. Um, and there you have it. Next, we want to discuss Chinese opera. The ladies at the end of the episode of the Imperial Harem are watching some Peking opera or Beijing opera. Bear with us as there is a lot to take in in this scene. First, let's do a little bit of an introduction to Chinese opera. Chinese opera, or Qu is a form of Chinese theater or musical theater dating back thousands of years. It is an amalgamation of various types of art forms, including dance, singing, acrobatics, and comedy. The stories used for Chinese opera range from legends to local folklore to history. And again, we mentioned this before, but Chinese uh, theater or music is generally very different from uh, Western opera or Western music. Western opera, for example, you would have a libretto before some a composer would make the songs. That is not the case in Chinese opera. Today, we'll talk about Peking opera or Beijing opera. Beijing opera got its start in the late 18th century during the reign of Qianlong, who is our current emperor's son, around 1790. So this scene right here is actually an anachronism. We're currently in the 1720s. I will give them credit. They don't state that it's Beijing opera, so uh, we never we don't know. And the performers don't sing, so I can't be entirely sure, but this really, really does look like Beijing opera. Beijing opera is the most famous of Chinese opera, also known as the national opera. But there are a variety of different types of Chinese opera from the different regions of China. They include Sichuan opera, Cantonese opera, Yue opera, etc., Almost every region has their own type of opera. And most of the time, they are sung in their local dialect. Beijing opera began when the four great Anhui troops came to perform for Emperor Qianlong's 80th birthday. That type of opera is called Huizhu and became extremely popular in Beijing. The opera form incorporated aspects from other operas, including styles of singing, stories, martial arts, and melodies. With Beijing opera, there are four types of characters. The sheng, which is the male character. The dan, which is the female character. The jing, uh, which is a painted face male role. And the chou, the male clown role. On stage in the drama um, that we see here in this episode, we have the dan, the, uh, the female character, and the sheng, which is the male character. During this time period, only men could perform in opera. I can't quite tell here, but that would also be another anachronism if the person playing the then is female. In this scene, uh, and thank you very much, Kathy, for giving us a background of Beijing opera, the audience can request pieces and stories for the troupe to perform. This scene in this drama where the ladies are at, uh, watching the theater is really great because the concubines are using the opera pieces they select to again start sending veiled or not so veiled messages to each other. Let's take a look. When they enter, Huafei snags the first pick and says, I want to watch Liu Jing Ding Jiu Jia. This is a story of a Song Dynasty female general 
who protected her country from invaders. Wafe uses this as a signal to say, oh, my brother just came back from the front lines and our family is important to the stability of the empire. Obviously, because basically saying we are protecting the empire. Huafe then goes on to order two more operas, Ding Zhi Chunqiu and Xue Dingshan Zhengxi, two more war stories. Obviously, she wants to rub it in everyone's face and remind the audience or the other ladies in the imperial harem that her family is very important for the stability of the uh, Qing dynasty. The Empress Huang Hou doesn't even blink and asks to see Quan Shan Jingke and Yao Tai. The first piece, Quan Shan Jingke, is a story with boots about Buddha's disciple Mojaliana. Mojaliana. Apologies for the pronunciation. <laughs> the story is about his filial piety and devotion to his mother, saving her from the Preto world. The second piece, Yao Tai, then refers to the celestial palace of Yao Tai and uh, the Western queen that lives there. Both of these stories are about kindness and doing good, which obviously is a jab at Huafei um, for saying and saying, oh, she is just wearing all the most expensive clothes. She's not being frugal. Mm, what are you doing? I also think Huang Ho selects these two operas to mock Huafei's lack of children. But Huafei doesn't even catch this, so um, that's just me kind of inferring this fact. Later on, Huafei brings up Xue Dingshan Zhengxi again and says, we can't talk about Xue Dingshan without discussing Fan Lihua. What's the significance here? Xue Dingshan is a fictionalized character based off of a Tang Dynasty general. Fan Lihua is his wife and also a very popular historical figure, uh, she in this story is uh, more of a legend and very much just a story. So not, not much of this part is based off history. She was also a general, a brilliant strategist, heroic, basically every single awesome adjective. However, she was also a little hot-headed. Xue Dingshan divorces her three times due to misunderstanding and jealousy. He also has two other wives, so that complicates things. Divorce in China, depending on the dynasty, was a big no-no back in the day and, as always, was way worse for the woman than it was for the man. So that, so the fact that she was divorced multiple times is fascinating. Huafei is using this story to mock Huang Ko and say that, look at this woman, Fan Linghua, who couldn't even keep her husband. I don't want someone whose heart isn't with me. All the time, right? Huang Ho icily responds that the wife is the wife. No matter how many times she was divorced, Xue Dingshan, the husband, still came back to her, Fan Lihua, because there would not be three divorces if her husband did not marry her three times. And basically, Huang Ho is saying that no matter what, no concubine can take the position of being a wife away from her. If you couldn't tell, Huang Ho is trying to hint that no matter how powerful Huafei is, she is still just a concubine, while she, Huang Ho, is the main wife. Nice. Huafei immediately fires back. She says, well, that only worked since Fan Lihua was the daughter of the head or first wife. 
So she was the chul, while if she was the daughter of a concubine or was shu chul, she wouldn't have been able to do anything. This time, it is a jab at Huang Ho, since Huang Ho wasn't born from the main wife and was instead the daughter of a concubine. So Huang Ho is shu chul, while Fan Li Hua was di chul. This really hurts Huang Ho, and she doesn't really have anything to say. Fortunately, Jin Huan comes to the rescue. She requests to watch Nang Ke Ji. It's a story about a ranger who meets three beautiful ladies outside of a temple. They are here to find a husband for their princess, and they select the ranger. He weds the princess and spends 20 happy years with her, living in luxury, not really doing well at court, but just living it up. I'm skipping a lot. I'm paraphrasing a lot, but that's basically the gist. He gains power, money, and fame, depending on how the story is told. But all good things can't last, and he loses everything due to some enemies at court. All of a sudden, he is awoken from his dream, realizing that none of the last 20 years happened. Everything was just in his mind, which is devastating. There's a heavy Buddhist theme here to the story, and he eventually gives everything up and becomes a Buddha. So that's kind of a, a different ending to this tale. <laughs> Jin Huan's point here is that the higher you go, the harder you fall. No one will care about your parentage or your previous wealth. It will all just be a dream. I'd say that's a pretty apt description and warning for Hua Fei. She really needs to tone it down. The Empress smiles to acknowledge Jin Huan as she is thankful for the clever idea and support. An Lingrong then peeks up to make a comment about love between two people, and she is quickly shut down by Hua Fei. Once again, Jin Huan comes to the rescue, but I don't think An Lingrong really appreciates this. Phew, are you exhausted by all of these stories? With these ladies going to the opera, we had to do a lot of explaining of all the different uh, pieces that they've selected. This exchange at the opera was quite tiring for us to research too, actually. We knew a few of the stories, but not everything. So it's interesting and fun to piece together the deeper meaning behind all of these opera titles. And I appreciate, once again, that these insults are hurled in a very concealed way. That is it for this episode, episode 22. Thank you all so much for joining us and we look forward to having you with us in the next episode. Hope you learned something. If you have any comments or questions, please let us know and reach out to us at chasingdramaspodcast at gmail.com. Have a great rest of your day.